Welcome to Saturday Night at the Movies, the podcast that celebrates, contemplates, and sometimes criticizes current classic and cult films. I'm Steve Rubin. Our producer is Ben Shrewsbury, and we're on the Lock 22 Network. Here it's always Saturday night. And I'm very pleased to welcome our guest tonight, former film and television actor and accomplished fine artist, Joby Baker. Hi, Joby. Hi there, everybody. How are you doing? Great to have you on the show. Uh, I was joking the other day that I, I flipped on the television and Gidget Goes Hawaiian was there, and there was Joby Baker staring me in the face. I said it was a good omen. I think that is a weird omen, yes. <laughs> Gidget Goes, so, what did you say it was? Gidget Goes what? Gidget Goes Hawaiian. Let's see, there were three Gidgets, I think. Gidgets. Gidget. Gidget and Gidget goes down on the crew. And then Gidget. <laughs> oh my God. So I have to, my first question to you is you were born Joseph. How did you become Joby? My father called me Jobala when I was a baby. Oh. Gotcha. And it stuck. Yeah, you understand that. Of course, of course. Um, I had a lot of uh, those kinds of nicknames growing up. Uh, uh, yeah, no, I hear you. I hear you. Okay, that explains. You, you know what I'm talking about. I've never told anybody that, by the way. So, I mean, I don't know how important that is for your show, but it, but you got me at the right time and I felt like telling you. Thank you. Thank you. Well, you're a Montreal native, so you're a Canadian and Canadians are considered some of the nicest people in the world. I believe you qualify. I do qualify. But let me tell you something. When I was, I was born in Montreal. And then when I was 21, I was in the infantry in the United States Army. And they called me into the office and asked me, they said, this is your birthday today. You're 21. What would you like to be? Canadian or American citizen? So uh, I said, well, what do you get with American? He said, what do you mean? I says, you know, like t-shirt or shaving equipment. What do you get with that? And he had no humor. So I said, okay, put me down for American. So you are a dual citizen? No, oh. I'm an American citizen. Oh. I've never gone to the to the uh, to the Canadian embassy to make it a dual citizen. I wish I had a dual citizenship. Joby, do you come from a family with any show business connections? No. So what was the motivating factor for you to get involved in acting? Were you were you in school plays? No, I wasn't. Um, I was in, I was so impressed and knocked out with Dean and Jerry. Oh. And then I started doing Jerry Lewis impressions and evidently I did did that so well that I be, began to get uh written written up in LA about uh, the Jerry Lewis impersonator and then I became friends with him. And he and I were pretty good friends. 
Really? So was this post army after getting out of the army? No, this was before army. Oh. It was before armies when I got into the show business. But while I was in the army, I was an entertainer. And by that time, I had a nightclub act. And I would do that uh, as an entertainer in the service. Now, were you stationed primarily in the U.S. or did you go over to places like Germany? No, no, I was stationed at Fort Ord, Fort Robert, Roberts in Colorado Springs. Right. Those two places, that's where I was stationed. I was an athletic instructor in Monterey, California for the U.S. Army, which I loved, had a great time. And um, and that's it. I didn't have to fight. Uh well, although during the Korean War, I was shipped out uh, to go to Korea, and the war ended probably while I was on the train to go to, to Seattle. And uh, I went to the replacement depot to get my, my blanket and my sheets and pillowcases and whatever. And they said, you're not on the list. I said, what do you mean I'm not on the list? He says, I've got a list of everybody that's supposed to be here right now, and you're not on it. I said, what does that mean, that I could just walk out and leave? He says, I don't care what you do. Wow. Isn't that interesting? That is Hold interesting. on. Jesus, there's another phone call. Until this interview, I've never been so popular. <laughs> no service assessment. God. Something's wrong with my phone, but I got you, so that's okay. So when, in terms of your performing career, you had a nightclub act. Did you start on the East Coast? What is, are you listening to me? 855-905-2514 from 8 a.m. to 5 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. Thank you and have a great day. Oh, we, can, we can edit that out easily. I'm uh, so sorry about that. Oh, no I, worries. No worries. I was asking, did you start performing professionally in media before your nightclub act or was your nightclub act the first thing you did professionally? Oh, let me see. Um, did I report? Well, let's see. It started, it started where um, I developed... I developed an act while I was in the army because I was in special service. Right. And before I got into the special service or into the army, I was on the road with a group of actors and enter entertainers. And we used to visit army camps and do shows for them. And it was at that time that I was connected with uh, James Mobley, who was producing those things who was the son-in-law for Lou Costello. And then we got Lou Costello to come up and entertain the troops. And then Lou Costello and I became friends and he became my manager. You gotta be kidding. No, I'm not kidding. It's so funny. So my, my manager for a little while was Lou Costello. And we used to, when Jimmy and I would um, leave the camp and we would stay with him and his wife at the house, at his house. Oh, that's so funny. I took a hosting class last year with his granddaughter. Really? Who, who, was, his, 
who was the granddaughter's mother? You know, I'm not 100% sure, but I think her name is Mar Marnie Costello, and she gave me some pointers on how to host. But by boy, between Jerry Lewis and Lou Costello, you were in good company. Well, you know, when you're in company like that, you don't realize you're in good company. They just become friends, you know. So according, and, uh, to, according to IMDb, one of your first credits, at least according to IMDb, was you were on the Red Skelton Hour in 1952 as a teenager. I was. Yeah. As a what? As a teenager. Oh, I didn't know what part I took, but I do remember being on that show. Got it, got it. And then you were uh, you were on a, a series called West Point, which I remember. There were a lot of military shows on in the 50s. And then I guess your first movie was Gidget in 1959. Uh, you no, know, my first movie was called Target Zero with oh, Charles Bronson. Oh, there it is. Yeah, you're right. You are pri an uncredited private. Okay. Not Charles Bronson. So being a member of the service, getting a military... Uh, a role was probably quite appropriate. Well, I don't know. I was a friend of Charlie Bronson and he came up to Fort Carson to do this movie. And I was stationed there and he looked me up and put me in his movie. I mean, I had no part really. I was that, but that was my first movie. Got it. Got it. But yeah. Uh, and you played a, a, a soldier. Uh, but tell tell us about I, tell us about Gidget because Gidget's a pretty high profile movie for 1959. As I recall, you were the guy making surfboards. As I recall, you played a character named Stinky. Right, but I don't remember making surfboards. But that was, you know what I mean. That when you're under contract to a studio, do you do whatever they say? So Gidget was was part of my job. And that's so, when I became very good friends with Jimmy Darren, and he and I are still friends. Do you have memories of Gidget? Does anything stand out for you? Obviously, you have Sandra D. I mean, what are your memories of the show? Well, let me see. Um, I, I remember having a lot of sand down in my trunks. <laughs> I mean, I do remember, you know, getting sand in in my bathing suit, and and then I, I don't have any memory. I mean, it wasn't a, it wasn't memorable to me. It was just that I would they would come and pick me up in the morning in a van or a bus, and the cast would go to the beach and we would hang around. And Paul Wenkos, I think, was the director. Right. Right. And. Uh, and uh, he used to come to me and say, listen, tomorrow we have to do something funny. Do you have any ideas? So he had no ideas. So the idea of humor for a guy like that or in Gidget is like if you trip over a surfboard and fall in, in the water. I mean, that was their big, big humor. I'm not trying to put them down. It's just that it was it was just work, you know, when was, you're you're. When I w and I didn't have a big part, and when you don't have a big part, there's more work than uh, you you would have in, if you had a large part, and you'd be busy with you know acting. All I did was sit around on the sand and uh, uh, watch the show. 
And there are a lot of pretty girls around. Obviously, it's a beach party movie. So um, the eye candy was probably there. But you said you made friends with Jimmy Darren. So he became a buddy of yours. No, he and I were under contract to Columbia. At the time, we did all these beach movies. And he and I stayed friends. He and his wife and I. And we're very close, and I, I talk to him all the time. Well, I haven't talked to him for a month or two, but he's a wonderful person and a great singer and a very quiet person, and he doesn't seek uh, publicity, and, you know, he's he's a, a very cool guy. Do you think it's a coincidence that you were in two more Gidget movies with him, or do you think he helped you a little bit there? No, he didn't help me. I was under contract to the studio. Got it. The studio put me in the movies, not him. Got it. Got it. You understand what I'm saying? Completely. Completely. So you were under contract. Hold on a second. Okay. Um, Wait, my uh, my manager wants to talk to me. What is it? Oh, you can sit down and listen. Listen to all the lies I'm going to tell Steve. (laughs) My wife's name is Megan, and she is the my best friend. Hi, Megan. Um, Hi, Megan, he said. Hello. Steve, Hello. his name is Steve. I'm glad he did this for you. Thank you. We're enjoying oh, it. Are you talking glad Steve did that for me, or I did no, this? No, you did this for him. Well, he asked me to. Yeah. <laughs> I know. So, Joby. Um, I hope ha- he doesn't ask me to do it again. Uh, the following, okay, the, the following year after Gidget, you did a movie that I just adore just because it's just pure fun. And it's called The Wackiest Ship in the Army. Um, I got a chance to interview the director once uh, who was under contract, I believe, at the time. Um, what do you what remember? was his name? His name was uh, Richard Murphy. And he right. also great wrote guy. Sp- I'm sorry. Great guy. Great guy. Yeah. He was also uh, the writer. See, I could tell you more about the wackiest ship than I can about Gidget. Gidget was vacuous, had nothing to do with anything. But the wackiest ship in the army was very interesting movie. Definitely. For the listeners who uh, have not seen the wackiest ship in the army, it's from 1960. Jack Lemon plays a U.S. naval officer who teams up with Ricky, Ricky Nelson, Nelson. Ricky Nelson. And the and great they, Joby Baker. And the yes. great Joby Baker, who's part of the crew of the of the Echo, which is a former uh, sailing ship that is uh, seconded to the U.S. Navy to drop a coast watcher off the coast of New Guinea during the Pacific Theater of World War II. It's a, it's a, exactly. what, what they call a service comedy because there's a lot of humor in the script, although it's also has drama. So these days they call it a dramedy. Um, Oh, really? (laughs) Yes, it was very, I really enjoyed doing that. And Jack Lemon and I were close friends. And it was great being on an island with Jack Lemon. So tell tell us about uh, uh, the logistics. This was shot where? On Kauai. On the island of Kauai. Got it. And how Not long? Not in the studio. 
not in the studio. So it was an outdoor movie. How long did you spend on that island that you can remember? I spent it on there because we had a, during the filming of that movie, there was a, um, there was a, a writer's guild uh, where they shut down everything. So we had to leave the island, get on a plane, go back to America or go back to L.A. and then wait for the strike to get over. And then we got on a plane and went back. Wow. To so, Kauai. I mean, back and forth like that a lot. Had you been to Hawaii before? I'm from Hawaii. What does that mean? That means that's where I was raised. Oh, so after you were born in Montreal, you moved to Hawaii? Yes. What was happened just... after I was born in Montreal, my mother died. Oh. And my father was in terrible depression. And he had a brother who had a business in the Hawaiian Islands and in Tokyo. And his, my father's brother convinced my father to come to Hawaii and be with him. And of course he took me along. And um, that's, and I went there when I was very, very young. And then we were bombed during Pearl Harbor. And then my stepmother and I were transported on a great big sailing ship to San Francisco. And uh, they dropped depth charges all the way across, worrying that there was a Japanese sub following us. We were in a convoy. Very exciting, Steve. Joby, do you have memories of the Pearl Harbor attack? Sure, I do. What what were you? What island were you on? Were okay, you on let, oh. I was on the island of Oahu in Waikiki, oh which is goodness. you know like was a little beach, you know, and uh, Pearl Harbor was a few miles away. And I remember one morning, my father was upstairs in the bathroom, looking out of the window and shaving. Our phone was gone. We had no phone, we had no radio, and the Star Bulletin, the newspaper, wasn't delivered on that Sunday. So we had no idea what was going on. And my dad was looking out the window when he was calling down to his wife, God, you got to come up and see the maneuvers. They're amazing. So we saw puffs of smoke and airplanes diving, but we didn't see, you know, uh, we didn't see the the planes dropping bombs on boats. It was too far away. And then I was supposed to go to uh, Sunday school, and I belonged to the a Buddhist Sunday school, and I went out in front. Uh, to wait for the car to come and pick me up. And my mother came to the door and said, listen, I don't like the way you sound. Come back in here and wait, wait inside the, inside the apartment. And at that moment, um, a bomb came and where I was standing, waiting for the, the Buddhist uh, car to come and pick me up. Uh, we were bombed. Well, actually, it was one of our own missiles, because in the in the heat of the war, um, too, they didn't have time to set the the altitude 
uh, mechanism on on the shelves. They just loaded them and shot them up in the air, hoping to hit something. So one of those shells came down uh, in front of our apartment. And that blew the shit out of the roof. And people upstairs were killed. Oh, my God. Yeah. So I had no idea you were on the front lines of the first day of our, our entry into the war. That was pretty incredible. Um, you probably, you and your dad probably went to see the harbor after it was blown up, I bet. No, we didn't. Oh, you didn't? No. No, wow. we just went over to my uncle's house to get the radio, listen to the radio. Although in, on the radio it said Japanese were landing in Punchbowl, which was not true. So my father and my uncle Jimmy got in this little car, looked through the the drawers to find an old 38 and was all set to um, uh, go after the entire Japanese army with a 38. <laughs> oh, that's when that's the first time I got really scared. That's when I got really scared when those two guys went running up there looking for trouble. Wow. They never got there. But, um, and I'll tell you something interesting. When people heard that this young boy was eight years old or so, that I was at Pearl Harbor, everybody thought that was so incredible. And they made up, they made over me like I was a star, you know? And, and I'm talking about, you know, when I was in school in New York City, and they found out that I had been at Pearl Harbor and I <clears throat> and I got got used to being um, a celebrity about that. And then and then I continued to think that I was hot shit from then on. Although I, I've learned not to be like that anymore. <laughs> but I still remember how to drive ride a bicycle. So getting back to wacky as ship, so you um, have... Why would you want to get back to wacky as ship and I'm telling you about Pearl Harbor? Well, if you want to continue to talk about Pearl Harbor, that's completely interesting for me because I've always been fascinated by those early days of the war and what happened. So please... Continue. Okay, I'll tell you one incident that's really interesting, all right? Yes. We were on... My mother and I were being... We had to evacuate immediately or spend the rest of the... Uh, the war uh, in the islands. My father was exempt to that because I think he was somehow in the military that I didn't understand. <laughs> so anyway, we got on board the a huge boat called the Aquitania. And um, I had to go to the boys' room. And my mother said, I'll tell you how to get there. Um, I don't have to take you there. Just go down to the second deck and go the ba 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 and go down that aisle and at the end of the thing uh you'll see the men's room i said okay so i left and i did what she told me and then i went down to the second tier and there was noise coming out of a an apartment you know whatever they're called on a boat and there was a guy dressed up in all this regalia and his wife was naked on the bed and he was hitting the wife with a belt on her, on her tush, and the two kids were there watching, and I couldn't stop uh, looking 
and I was mesmerized. And I stood in the in the doorway, watching this man smack his wife, and he saw me watching him. He pulled a knife out of his. He w- was wrapped in like uh, a scarf around his middle, and he came running after me. And I went running down the aisle, screaming and yelling. And a, a hand came out and pulled me into the cabin. And the woman called the purser, and they came and arrested the guy and put him in in prison in, on the ship. What what a traumatic moment. I mean, that that story is a lot more interesting than the movie, a movie. Can you imagine? It, I, 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 have, I, don't know, I don't know how to respond to that one. That was, and that's 19. I've never, to, I've never told anybody about that. That's 1941. People, yes, exactly, 1941. Right, right. So it took quite a while to get across the Pacific to get to San Francisco. I have to know, did you ever make it to the bathroom? Yes, I did. And I, it was nice. I, 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 <laughs> I, I did. I made it to the bathroom. So you made it to I think Stanford? After the, yeah. I think the lady that pulled me into her room when I was screaming down the, the hall, I probably used her, her, her men's room in her cabin. Oh, that's good. I guess. I don't remember the pee-pee part at all. Um, leave it to me to bring up the uh, the trivial. Uh, so you get to San that's okay. No, no, trivial trivial is good. Megan, would you get the phone while I'm doing this? Okay, I'm sorry, Steve. So let's let's get back to the wackiest ship in the army. So you um, okay? You uh, one of your first scenes in the movie is one of my favorite, where you of all the crewmen are asked to climb the mast to to uh, free the uh, the whatever jaws, the lock jaws or whatever they call them. And uh, you've got to climb up the mast. Now you had a double, you told me, but you had to do no, some climbing. No, no, I had, I had no double. Okay. I did, I did that myself. And how freaky was that? It was so scary and so freaky. And what was really freaky is that we were moored next to a big uh, uh, naval vessel. We were in a, on a sailing ship, see? And we were right next to um, a destroyer or whatever uh, other uh, ship was there. I think it was a tender. A tender, okay. So I was up there and we were... I was seeing the sailors on the tender and I was way to fuck up there, excuse my language. And I was looking down thinking, you know, there's got to be something about show business that's better than this. <laughs> and Jack Lemon comes up to save you. Now you say you became friendly with Jack Lemon. It must have been wonderful to work with him. He was absolutely the best. I wish he were still alive so you could meet him and talk to him. I have. He was I, I, I have met him. I actually. Oh, you worked, you told yeah. me that you worked with him. Yeah, he came over to Showtime in 1996 and did a remake of Twelve Angry Men, and then he did Inherit. Oh the, yeah, you told me about yeah. that. Great idea. Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah. you you know that he was a wonderful person. 
also a Navy veteran. Apparently during the war, he was given that he was an officer and he was given the command uh, or not the command, but at one point he has to steer an aircraft carrier through Chesapeake Bay. And I guess uh, he got uh, he, he uh, got it up on a sandbar. So that was uh, one of his more ignominious moments. Uh, um, oh, my, I never I never knew that. Of course, Jack would, uh, you know, but he seemed that he seemed comfortable in Navy Guard because he had had such success with Mr. Roberts, which was five years earlier. Um, but you liked him. Do you remember any of the other cast members? Did you did you do you remember uh, Ricky Nelson? Did you enjoy working with Ricky? Yes. Well, I, I Ricky Nelson moved next door to me in Hollywood Hills. Oh. And uh, yes, I I hung out with Ricky. He he was a terrific guy. And his brother, and he were both in Wacky Ship. I don't think his brother had a part. But I knew that during the time of our filming, there was a circus in Honolulu, and they both did a, a acrobats. They from you know, they they were, I don't know what it's called when you grab a grab a a bar and you you do flips in the air and oh, there's a gymnastics. net down at the bar. Gymnastics, right? Yeah. So they were into the circus thing, and I and I. I had a good time with him, but my best friend was Ricky. I mean, was Jack. And then there was another guy. You said Alvy Moore was dead. Yeah, and then there he was, was a uh, friend Mike, of mine in that movie. Mike Kellen played the chief, and I love Mike Kellen. He's in some great movies. Uh, always very gritty actor. Do you have memories of Mike? Of who? Mike Kellen. He played uh, the chief. Um, let's see what his. Oh name. yeah, yeah, yes. I re of course I remember him. Yes. Yeah, my. You know, we were on that island for so long that we all became very, very good friends, and yes. then we really got really bored being on that island, where we would get so crazy that we had food fights. <laughs> We'd throw food at each other. It's funny. One another one of the cast members later became my insurance agent, uh, Warren Burlinger. Oh, Warren! Warren is an old friend of mine. Yes, I forgot that he was in that. Yeah, he played Sparks, whose actual name was Sparks. He plays a radio man named Sparks, which I thought was kind of funny. Um, yeah, Warren. I mean, I've known Warren since we were very young actors. You have another funny moment where you think the ship is leaving. So you're running down the dock and you dive onto the ship when discovering later that it's coming into port. Do you remember that moment? Uh, no. Okay. But I you... mean, pretty good, pretty good, pretty good time we had on that island. Now that that's interesting to me, and of course, the, then you go on the mission, and uh, I guess um, let me ask a question. Uh, obviously, the crew were all actors. There probably was a very good sailing crew doing the actual sailing when you went out to sea. Obviously, yeah. Well, I don't know who who ran that ship, but uh, I think it was like a two-masted schooner. Yeah, yeah, and a big. That was a big sailing ship, and I. 
I think you got to really know what you're doing to sail one of those ships. Now, did you have a roommate or did you get your own uh, apartment while you were making that movie? I got my own apartment. Oh, that's good. Okay. So being a young buck in Hawaii, being single, uh, I assume you were single at that time. I don't know if I was or not. Oh, okay. Uh, <laughs> um, but there weren't very many women on that in that uh, film. I th think there so were. So you're no about to ask me if I uh, uh, had a girlfriend on that film, and what did I do? And a nice, uh, a, a nice warm um, night on the island. I uh, know I didn't have any of that. <laughs> Actually, there was one woman on that movie, and she played kind of the woman who liked Jack, and it was a British actress. And her name is Patricia Driscoll. You probably didn't have any scenes with her. Oh, yes. Patricia oh. Driscoll. Yes. Yes. I think she wasn't there all the time. I think they just flew her in when her part came up. Also, it's interesting. During the battle sequence, when you guys are getting away from uh, the Japanese, uh, two Japanese, well, a whole Japanese group comes on board the Echo, led by... Um, Terushimada, who was the great Japanese actor, and then the Captain Shigetsu, who's the one who speaks English, is played by George Shibata. The reason I know George Shibata is the same. He was your insurance man. No, that's Warren. He wasn't Ber your insurance man. No, that's Berlinger, but Shibata. That's Berlinger. Was Berlinger Japanese? No, Warren Berlinger was not Japanese, but George Shibata was Japanese American. He was the uh, one of the jet aces of the Korean War, interestingly enough. I learned that later because um, he um, he is a, has a small part in a movie that was also made in 1960 called Hell to Eternity with Jeffrey Hunter. And that was the true story oh. of Guy Gabaldon, who single-handedly captured 1,100 Japanese on Saipan in 1944. And I did a documentary called uh, East L.A. Marine, the untold story of Guy Gabaldon. No kidding. Now, when you say that you did a documentary. I wrote, uh, you, I wrote yeah, I you wrote, wrote, you wrote it. I wrote it, produced it, directed it. Uh, it was released uh, uh, a while ago. Um, it's an interesting story. And, you know, Jeffrey Hunter played him. He was a, basically a young man who uh, was raised by Japanese Americans in East LA. And when the war broke out and they were all sent to the internment camps, Guy joined the Marines and landed in the first wave at Saipan. In reality, uh, he wasn't a no six kidding. Foot, he wasn't a six foot one uh, Caucasian. In reality, Guy Gabaldon was Guy Gabaldon. He was of Hispanic uh, lineage and he was about five foot three and three quarters. He was a little guy and I got to know Guy very well. Uh, he helped me with the documentary. Oh, how great. Did you, and you, did you just say you work with Jeffrey? Well, no, unfortunately not, uh, Jeffrey. Uh, but I have a feeling you're going to tell me that you had worked with Jeffrey. I have. But I don't remember. Because uh, he was one of my oh. favorite actors, and he died tragically. But I'm looking at your credits. You might have done something with him in television. You know After something, you're looking at my credits. I I just recently looked at my credits and I couldn't believe I did so much stuff. Oh, you did a ton of stuff. You were also 
a regular on the first season of Combat with Vic Morrow. No, that was really interesting. Vic Morrow and I were friends. I really cared for him. That show was director. very, yeah, that show was very important to me growing up because that's kind of, I sat at my dad's knee and we watched World War II together every Tuesday nights on ABC. And I, I actually tried for about 10 years to get that made into a feature film of <laughs> combat. I had the rights with Robert Pyrosh, who wrote and created that series. But uh, you were there with Morrow. <laughs> I think Vic Morrow was one of the great actors of 60s television and uh, an in, in actor, great actor, period. No, you're, you're absolutely right. Vic Morrow was a wonderful actor, very, you know, very uh, serious uh, actor. Yes. And, and who was the director that was so great on that? Well, Bob. you're probably talking about Robert Altman. Yeah, Robert Altman. I remember one time he he directed a lot of those. I remember Bob Altman and he wanted me to be in another movie, but I was on my way to South America to be in my production of a of a movie called Alto Ritrato. And um but he he did ask me to be to, you know, star in one of his movies, which was amazing. It never happened, of course. But I was so impressed with him. He was an amazing director. Now, a lot um, of as the, a, an, yeah. Go ahead. Yeah, go. I'm sorry. No, go ahead. No, you go ahead. I was just about no, to you say. You go ahead. A, <laughs> a lot of people remember you, Joby, from your TV series "Good Morning World." I think that was probably one of the more high-profile things you ever did. Can you talk a little bit about "Good Morning World"? Oh yeah, that was a big deal. I mean, I um that was my show. I mean, it it starred me. And um let me see how I can explain this to you. But I was doing a play in Los Angeles called the with Ray Bradbury had cast me in uh uh a a play uh uh, into this play called uh, The Day It Rained Forever was one of them. The same night we did three plays and The Wonderful Ice Cream Suit. And I played a guy named Blominos. And so Carl Reiner and, and those guys, uh, I guess the word was out about me that I was really good in it. But I played a Mexican character, which was, which was more interesting for me to play Mexicans. Uh, you can't do that anymore, but I played a lot of Mexicans in those days. And um, they came down and uh, wrote Good Morning World for me. Just from that Ray Bradbury play that I did. Well, you were in good company so, there in the sense that the show was created by Sam Denoff and Bill Persky, who were very established uh, television writers. Uh, yes, they were. They were very well established. Can you tell the listeners that who don't know the show what the show's premise was? Hello? Oh. Excuse me. When I hear the word Denoff, I start to cough. 
<laughs> Sorry. <laughs> can you tell? Uh, Excuse me. No problem. We can we can edit. No worries. I think the premise was two guys who were disc jockeys, and they did early morning uh, radio. That that was it. Um, I think I think was in that. I think uh, being a teenager at that time, I think I responded to the show because I was listening to a lot of disc jockeys and it seemed it would be addressing my world. Yeah, right. Exactly. Uh, Billy the Wolf <laughs> was a lot of listeners won't know who he is, but he was classically in the show business world. One of the great character comedians of all time. And he played my boss. And he was really one of the important things in my life at the time. Do you know who Billy DeWolf is? Yes. Yes, a great character actor. And you also had your partner was Ronnie Shell, who people know yes. from Gomer Pyle. Right. Right. Wow. He's a good, very good guy. And Julie Parrish was my wife in that movie. And she passed on. But she was one of the great leading ladies I ever worked with. She was the best actress. I sure wish she was still around. And I think uh, Goldie Hawn had a part on that show. Yeah. Uh, Didn't know much about Goldie. She was there every day, but nobody knew who the hell she was. It's funny. She was very busy being Goldie. What? One of the character actors who was also with with you, I know him because he still lives out in Thousand Oaks area. Do you, do, do you remember a gentleman named David Ketchum? Of course. I've known David Ketchum since, since the beginning. Ask David Ketchum about us. We were friends. He, he actually told me that he was also involved in uh, the service and doing... Uh, doing uh service shows so i have a feeling that you had very similar early careers i love david <laughs> for the listeners who well don't you see know, yeah in those days uh there was a war going on and a lot of uh entertainers I, i'm not just saying actors but basically entertainers like comics or whatever and uh they would go out on the road and entertain the servicemen no, exactly. That was something. Yeah, exactly. For those David you, Ketchum. Yeah, for the listeners who don't know who David Ketchum is, if you watched a TV series back in the day called Get Smart, he always played an agent who was hidden in, in, a, in a camouflage. So he'd be inside a mailbox or he'd be in a trash can or he'd be inside a building. So that was Dave Ketchum. Very, very sweet man, a good writer. So let's uh, let's shift gears for a second here. Let's Let's talk a little bit about your art. Now, when did you pick up a When you say shift gears, are you talking to a Toyota here or what? I am talking to a Rolls Royce. Okay, thank you. Very, very sharp. You're going to be a starlet one day. (laughs) So when did you pick up a brush? Always. Always wanted to to draw, to paint. I was just interested in stuff, you know, materials and art. And and that was 
more interesting to me than being in the acting business. But it's not just picking up a brush. You get to a point where you're able to unconsciously put on piece of paper or canvas what you really feel and it's almost damn impossible if you ever get to that point you'll be a great artist would you say are you that, still there i am totally here i, I was going to say do you do you remember a moment that no you... no no you can't ask an, a painter those kind of questions okay do you remember okay. a moment well i was just going to say do you remember a moment when you're a, a tv actor but not as a fine artist that There's makes no sense. such thing as remembering a moment. It's like saying, do you remember the first time your heart started? That's you, a good question. You know, I mean, it's really that deep. No, I hear you. Organically. I hear you. It is very, very deep. Unless you're a painter, I wouldn't even attempt to talk to painters. I, I, you hear me? I do, exactly. And I don't profess to be anywhere near an artist i i bow to people who can create art and uh, uh well they can't help it don't you see sure you can't even give them credit for that that's how weird weird that, that artist stuff is it is so bizarre you can't say well that you're really good and you're getting better it's not about that it's just that you can't help doing what you do and you think about it all the time and a little while ago, I lost that. I lost the ability to think about it all the time. And I, I haven't done a lot of painting for quite a while. And it's, it's really difficult. And um, it's very difficult. But anyway, no, no, uh, I mean, what were I, you saying? I, I was just gonna, I'm just, I'm, I'm actually looking online. If anybody wants to see Joby's paintings, you just need to type in Joby Baker art and you see a wonderful collection of your work. And uh, yeah, know you know, what's interesting ever since I, I made arrangements to have some of my work on online, um, other painters put their stuff right in my, I mean, and they're shitty paintings. I don't want to be <laughs> associated with, you know, amateur painters, but uh, uh, I guess I could se separate it. It's just that I don't feel like doing it. You know, but, um, uh, not not being. Um, I certainly am sensitive to not asking the uh, wrong questions. But what is your um, what is your preferred medium? What what do you what are you using as your materials? Has it always been the same, Joby, or have you changed over the years? Well, the truth of the matter is is what's ever at hand. Got it. I'm usually in a room surrounded by all this shit. You know what I mean? You got watercolor, <laughs> you got paint, you got this and you got that. And and then I get into it and I just grab what's close. I'm looking at one of your paintings right now. It looks like a young woman with her head inside a dog's mouth. And it's just beautiful. Oh, that's the that's the cover of uh, Dory Previn's book, the German edition. Ah, okay. Got it. Got mm -hmm. it. That's some good book, boy. I'll tell you that. It's called Midnight Baby. Oh, gotcha. Gotcha. 
So have you illustrated? I, mean, I, I, bet you, I, bet you, I bet you would lo love to read that. It's a screenplay-like. It wasn't written to be one, but you'll recognize what I'm saying. Just get the book Midnight Baby. You could probably pick one up for $1.50. I'm writing it down right now, absolutely. And would you call me if, if and when you read it? I will. I will definitely, definitely call you. And this has been so delightful, Joby. I hope you've enjoyed it. Um, I know the listeners. Well, it was great. It was terrific talking to you. Thank really you, terrific. Thank and you. your energy is wonderful. And what you, you're achieving, I put money on you. I bet on you. Well, everyone, you've been listening to Saturday Night at the Movies. Our guest is Joby Baker, the actor and accomplished fine artist. Uh, my producer is Ben Shrewsbury. We're on the Lock 22 Network. Uh, I'm just so happy to have you on the show, Joby. And please stay safe out there and be well, and we'll stay in touch. Okay. Can you still hear me? I can still hear